there's a thing called confirmation bias. Whenever something comes along that is what we, the a fact that we want to be true, we treat it as if it is true. I said, well, that's not true. And then, you know, maybe later we're embarrassed that that's not true. But at the time we're like, yeah, that must be right. You know, Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Don't surely we're always as committed to truth as we need to be. And I think there's only way to get to that is if Christians can actually have realistic dialogues about how to solve problems. We're, we're just strangely inconsistent. What David Kinnaman, the uh, president of Barna, uh, is one of my former students. He just sent me their latest study of a sense of self-identified Christians. They are right now, at this moment, less committed to racial unity than they were a year ago. There's absolutely no way that that's not a political result. Just, there's no way that that is Christ-like people trying to figure out how can we meet the needs of under-included, under-represented populations. That is the voice of Gary Stratton, Dean and Professor of Spiritual Formation and Cultural Leadership at Johnson University. He joins me today to discuss his upcoming book, A Different Kind of College, Following Jesus as a Student. You are listening to the podcast with John C. Lemon. Dr. Stratton, welcome. Great to be with you, John. You are currently working on a book titled A Different Kind of College, Following Jesus as a Student. Introduce us to your book and tell us how you got started on this path. It really goes back to the very beginning of my walk with faith. I did not grow up in a Christian home. In a moment of searching, I went and saw the uh, performance of the musical Jesus Christ Superstar and I just was enthralled with the person of Jesus and kept thinking, oh, if only I could have been one of his disciples, the issues of meaning I'm looking for would be solved. And when they came at the end, Judas rises from the dead at the end of that movie and sang this title song, Jesus Christ Superstar. Do you think who they say you are? I thought to myself, that is a great question. So I went home, I had to search the whole house for a family Bible, blew the dust off the cover and started reading the gospels. And I just was in awe of Jesus and longing to have been a disciple. And one night I thought, well, since I'm reading the Bible, I ought to pray. So the only prayer anybody had ever taught me was, now I lay me down to sleep. But, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. So this tough jock starts praying that prayer. And someone's around, angels, angels watch you through the night. The Holy Spirit did what only the Holy Spirit can do. The Father revealed who Jesus was to me. And I, I saw him and I blurted out loud something like, Jesus, of course, have you you're not the son of God. I don't know what that means, but you're God, the son, you rose from the dead. Then you're right here in the room with me, just like you would, were with the disciples. And I could even know you better than them. And then I felt really kind of stupid. But then I thought, well, I'm going to go for it. And I just said, okay, Lord, if you're there and you're God, I'm yours. And nothing really dramatic happened, but I felt like I had made this connection with God. So for six months, I did nothing but read the New Testament. I read all the gospels and deep into the epistles, and I had no idea what had happened to me. And then one day after a philosophy class at lunch, some students were sitting around talking and the argument got, well, what philosophy do you follow? And, you know, Randy wanted, was an Aristotelian and 
Betsy was a Platonian. And finally, you know, someone turned to me and said, what are you? And I stopped and I thought about it. I says, well, I guess I'm trying to follow Jesus. Right. And uh, <laughs> Lorraine Felker turned to me and went, you're a Christian? I said, I don't know. And she said, well, you accepted Jesus into your heart, didn't you? And I had no idea what she's talking about. But she said, you've been born again. And I thought about it. I read John. I said, I guess I, I have. And she said, well, me too. And I was just shocked and just show you how unchurched I was. I said to her, you mean there's two of us? I mean, I literally thought we're the only two people in the 20th century trying to follow Jesus. And she looked at me, two nothing. I got a whole fellowship group of them at my church. You got to come. Well, I was so excited. I, it was like I had been told that I'd been led into this secret group of scientists that had, had made contact with aliens and I was going to get to meet the aliens. Like I could not wait to meet this great faith that I saw in the Gospels and the book of Acts. And John, can I tell you that that evening was probably the most single, most disappointing evening of my life? Tell me why. Why was it so disappointing? Well, I kept looking at what is going on in the room and then at the Bible that I've been reading, and I saw no relationship whatsoever I see. between the ministry of Jesus and of the early church than whatever it was the games we were playing and the well-intended little devotional we had. And I think that this book was probably birthed that night where I realized I had learned to follow Jesus in a different way than most of my friends had learned to follow Jesus in what some people might call churchianity, that I figured out, or started to figure out how to follow him as a student or what the New Testament would call a disciple. And that has just been the, the central element of all of my faith ever since. Referencing your book, A Different Kind of College Following Jesus as a Student, you talk about what it means to follow Christ, what it meant thousands of years ago versus what we might believe it means today. When Jesus looked at the disciples and said, follow me, tell us a little bit about the history of that phrase and that invitation. Well, we have a tendency to, to just read the New Testament as if it was happening today and has nothing to do with us today. But I mean, what Jesus was doing was very specific within the way education was done in his day. Everybody in the Jewish world, most all boys and most girls, they started primary school at age seven. They learned how to write. They had to study the, the Torah, the first five books, the Jewish scriptures. When they came of age, had their bar mitzvah at age 13. Best students got to go continue to study in the study school or kind of high school while they learned to trade. And then uh, their high school curriculum was amazing. I mean, they basically had to memorize the entire Torah to, <laughs> to graduate. But then it was only the very, very best of those students that were invited to go to their version of college, which was to study with a great traveling rabbi. Or occasionally there's a rabbi that was so great, like Amaliel, he didn't have to travel. And Paul went to, Rome, went to Jerusalem to study with him. But normally there wasn't enough money. They would just travel from village to village. Everybody wanted to be, the parents wanted their, their kids to be picked to be in this college in the same way they want to get, put the right sticker on the back of the Volvo today. And so when Jesus, the biggest rabbi, the most famous rabbi in Galilee at that time, turned to Peter, John, James, John, different, and said, follow me, he was saying to them, they understood it as, come, join my college, join my, join my collegium, travel with me day and night, learn my teachings, adopt my way of life. They were like, yeah, I'm in. But these were not salvation decisions. These were educational decisions that I'm going, I, what I want is you, and I want to be instructed in your teaching. I find that fascinating that it was not a salvation decision, more so that it was an educational decision. 
And in the process of learning, in the process of their education, they came to the point of what we understand following to be a salvation decision and then going on and sharing salvation with others. What steps are there between the educational process and the process of saying, okay, I do want to be a Christian now that I know what that is? Yeah, no, there's a great question. So depending upon who you listen to, seven to 12 different types of conversion narratives in the New Testament. So to say that there's one right way, one system that works, we, ha- we tend to overemphasize the Pauline totally going against Jesus and then bang, one incredible experience, bam, 100% following Jesus. That is actually very unusual uh, in history and in scripture. But if you take the 12, I mean, we've got four books about these people, and then we get to follow them through the book of Acts or fifth book. So they're, they're pretty important. The word disciple that they use to describe themselves is used 280 times in scripture, whereas the word Christian is only used three times. So if you look at what it means to be a disciple, you're probably figuring out what it means to follow Jesus. And for them as all, it was a very specific pattern. Now, I'm being so general here that I always, you always risk that people are going to be held outside this, but people started with a desire. They wanted to follow Jesus. And they probably wanted to follow him for the wrong reason. Most of the 12 probably wanted to follow him because they wanted him to be the Messiah who would beat up the Romans and turn over the kingdom of God back to the Jews, and they could be sit at his right and his left in glory. But then they knew that they were, as becoming disciples of a great rabbi, they were committing themselves to absorbing his teachings, to adopting his way of life, to abiding with him day and night. So they came under his instruction. So they get to begin to get instructed. And as they do, that instruction of what the kingdom of God's really about begins to create a sense of sacrifice because they realize, gosh, what I really want and what Jesus is teaching me don't actually coincide. I've got to get on his agenda, even be willing to go to pick up my cross to follow him. And then they come, all the disciples end up coming to these places of confirmation. And there's actually probably a number of them where they continue going in the journey. For instance, in John 6, it says, after Jesus talked about, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood to follow me. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And Jesus asked the 12, you don't want to leave too, do you? Simon Peter answered him, like he normally does, just opening his mouth to change feet. <laughs> Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and have come to know you are the Holy One of God. So, this is the mo- you know the really the mo- salvation moment for for Peter even though he started following Jesus is perhaps as long as 2 years earlier this is the moment where Jesus turns around and says to him flesh and blood has not revealed this to you Peter but my father in heaven that what Jonathan Edwards called that divine and supernatural light where we actually come to a place of faith where we know him not just believe him but also have come to know And that pattern just repeats itself over and over again throughout the lives of disciples in this book and in the church, and especially for those who've grown up in the faith. I find this fascinating, very interesting. You mentioned that this educational slash discipleship experience, they understood that they were adopting a new way of life or they were being invited to adopt the way of life of their instructor or their rabbi. Jesus in this example. Where do you think we're falling short in this process? Because of this educational commitment they're making, before they even actually knew Jesus, they actually, you know, had become Christians in any, you know, New Testament, any, you know, sense today, they were already following him. They knew to follow him, any rabbi, they had to 
absorb his teachings. They had to, once Jesus chose the 12, suddenly all of his teachings start to get recorded from us in scripture. They had to travel with him day and night. And so once his disciples come with him and they're paying attention to those things, all his miracles start to get reported for us in the gospels. And we are, we're adopting this way of life, but they just knew that was baseline. That's where you started in discipleship. And then it went even more when they came to know him. What tends to happen today, I, I believe a few of the right things, or at least I can mouth them. And now I follow Jesus. And Maybe later I'll get to, you know, those lordship things like abiding with him or, or absorbing his teaching or adopting his way of life. I mean, it's just completely backwards. I don't live terribly far from you. I think um, maybe six hours away. And the part of the country that I live in, if you are a transplant, the first thing they say to you is choose a blue. <laughs> I know exactly what they're saying. And people do. And we're almost as tribal as that. And when we get to that place where we're choosing a side, we lose objectivity. No, we do. And I, you know, I've had the advantage of having lived long enough to watch political fortunes uh, ebb and flow. My grandmother, God rest her soul, was uh, the leading real estate agent in the state of Washington, I think three years in a row. She was elected a delegate to the Democratic National Convention. And she was a church planter in a day when a woman being a church planter is incredibly rare. Um, she, this woman loved Jesus, but she just could not understand how someone could be a Christian and be a Republican. Like, she just could not understand that. That was the party of the rich, and it wasn't the party of the poor. It wasn't the party of, for helping, taking care of the poor, like Jesus said. So to live long enough to have people say, I don't understand how someone could be a Christian and be a Democrat. And I go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Our dilemmas were often very much small center of issues that become our political identity, whether it's religious liberty, which I think is incredibly important, pro-life, which I think is incredibly important. But we end up defining everything around a couple of things and don't look at the bigger pictures of what's going on. It's just not healthy. Spiritual formation. What exactly is that? Well, the fancy definition that my wife and I use is that spiritual formation is our participation in the prophetic imaginings of God's kingdom coming in and through our lives to reunite us to the heart of God, our true selves, our neighbor, and all of creation through the power of the Holy Spirit. Wow, that sounds fancy, like something you'd put in a book. Right. (laughs) What it really means is that the Holy Spirit is in the business of sanctifying us. That's God's business. The one who sanctifies us, the one that makes us holy, the one that uh, draws us towards Christ, the, the one that gives us the power to do that, the one that writes the law of God upon our hearts is the Holy Spirit. But we can participate or not participate in that process. And our participation in that process is what has come to be called spiritual formation. That in the same way, um, used to minister in California, you know, talk to kids on the beach, say, there's these powerful waves that are flowing in every day. Uh, but it's only someone that gets a surfboard and goes out in the waves and, and uses that surfboard to catch the waves that actually gets anywhere. And that spiritual disciplines, different things that we can do, are things that, we, that put us in the position where we can catch this grace and power of God that's constantly coming from the Holy Spirit. So there are certain things we can do, certain spiritual disciplines, certain practices, both corporate and private, that we can do, that if we do them, it's much more likely that we will become more like Christ. I think there are those that believe that we don't have a role in it. It just kind of happens. But we can grow by our cooperation with the work of the Holy Spirit. Could you help us? Could you give us some examples of what that cooperation looks like? 
John White taught me this concept of prescriptive Bible study. I mean, there's, it's very valuable to do what you and I did, to just sit down and read a gospel or sit down and read all the way through the Bible. You know, one spiritual discipline say, well, I'm really wrestling with loving somebody in my life. You know, they're totally driving me crazy. And I, I keep, t- by willpower, I'm trying to keep myself from being angry at them. And, but here I go, I get angry again. So rather than just reading my Bible in general or praying in general, uh, well, why don't I take some spiritual disciplines that might put me in a position that I could catch God's grace better? So I could start meditating on some verses that are about the love of God. I could start praying daily for the person that I'm really having having trouble loving. I might even fast because fasting kind of breaks the power of our will, uh, our default motions to go through things so that when the next time I'm tempted to go into that default mode, that willpower, the negative willpower has been broken. So they don't automatically say the wrong thing. Done persistently over time, we put ourselves in a position where more and more of God's light, God's love, God's grace, God's truth is flowing in and through us and begins to transform us from the inside out. That's probably one of the best ways to start in spiritual formation, rather than just kind of trying to do a whole bunch of different things, hoping they work for you. When I was reading through the materials that will appear in your upcoming book, the thought that came to my mind was apprenticeship. Being an apprentice, that piece seems sometimes to be missing. You know, it's interesting. I mean, this is not meant to be a controversial statement. It's the thesis of my book. But whenever I say it, people like blink and say that can't be right. I said, well, Jesus started a college long before anybody ever heard the word church. He used this Jewish tertiary model, college model, to train his disciples. And then look at the book of Acts. They keep using that. They get really big. They become a megachurch. If the definition of megachurch is more than 2,000 people in attendance. I mean, out on Solomon's porch, they got, you know, 3,000 people got saved one day. So there's, you know, they're a megachurch. But what marked them was them eating together in one another's homes and their devotion to the apostles' teaching, the prayer to the breaking of bread, And you just continue to watch this educational model continue in the book of Acts, continue in Paul's ministry. You literally can track that Paul is apprenticing and mentoring at different points in his ministry. So to say that there's something wrong with a megachurch is to say, well, we shouldn't ever reach a lot of people for Jesus. That's dumb. But to say (laughs) that a megachurch can become a very detrimental thing to someone spiritually if it becomes just about going to big meetings. Um, or even worshiping God alone together and hearing an adrenaline-soaked sermon, if it's not actually putting us in deep community with a group of people, that we actually have lifelong relationship, we're eating in one another's homes, and transforming me into the kind of person that sells what they have to take care of the poor, dude, that is an amazing work of God there. But it happens because it's not just the large group, it's also the small group and the apprenticing and mentoring. Eight essentials of following Jesus. Talk about those eight essentials. Well, I took the 280 times the word disciple as mentioned in the New Testament. And some of those are doubled up because they're the same basic uses in the three synoptic gospels. But I mean, there's a lot of them. But try to condense them down to the times where there was really something prescriptive or descriptive being said about what it meant to follow Jesus. And they just happened to sort out to be around eight things. Over 20 years of work, I realized that it really does go from desire to instruction, to sacrifice, to confirmation, to intimacy, to power, to love and endurance. That those really are the eight essentials, or maybe not the eight essentials, but eight essentials for following Jesus. And I'm not saying this is the only way to look at Jesus, but it's not the normal way to look at it. And I often prove that to my students by uh, 
telling by introducing him to the concept of the great parentheses, or some people call it the great comma. I have him read the Apostles' Creed. They read through it. Most of them have done it in their churches regularly. We do it in chapel with some regularity. And they'll say, what's missing? And they won't ever get it. And I say, well, just think about the things about Jesus. He was uh, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. Wait a minute. Doesn't a little bit happen between him being <laughs> born of the Virgin Mary and suffering under Pontius Pilate? I mean, basically, all of the Gospels uh, happen in there, his entire life, all his teachings. Uh, we just ignore Jesus uh, in order to protect certain doctrines that it's one moment in the church's history we thought were important. And I'm not saying they weren't important, but I'm saying we've actually, you know, the definition of a heresy is a good thing taken too far. We have taken the the deity of Christ too far and not understand what he was doing in his humanity as an educator to help us. So it, I think it's helpful for us to just take this frame and look at it and see this is a very, this means very, something very different about what it means to follow Jesus. The older I get, the more I lean towards the idea that discipleship should be somehow couched in a collegiate experience. No, I I would concur. You know, I think the pandemic has actually probably been good for the church in that sense. I mean, the churches that I'm working with and associated with by having to de-emphasize Sunday morning, it's resulted in a whole lot more interacting with each other during the week. Now, a lot of it's been on Zoom. But just a whole lot more interactions are taking place than ever happened on Sunday morning where everyone's rushing to get in and out of the building. Uh, we have multiple services, so you know there's not even a, you know, a long sitting around and talking all that much, maybe just a few minutes between services. I do see some hope. There's times I felt like the Sunday morning service has been a little bit like Bilbo when he wouldn't give up the ring. <laughs> just, <laughs> and Gandalf is, you know, I feel like the Lord's saying, I'm, I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you be, fully become the church and not, you know, the 80% of staff time and energy at churches is spent on a couple of hours on Sunday morning. That just, you know, logically doesn't work. When we look at what being a Christian is and that the fact that Jesus died for his enemies. And we put that alongside what Christianity has become. There's a gulf there. Yeah, I agree. And I think modernity in politics probably ends up confusing the issues for us sometimes. When you live like, you know, I've spent a lot of time working, ministering with believers in China. You know, they don't get to vote on their government. And their government is, for the most part, pretty anti-Christian. They're not confused by a decision that they make every four years, or if they're diligent, every one, once a year defines them. <laughs> that it's decisions they make every day following Jesus. I thought it was interesting this uh, summer of 2016, so it was right at the moment of the last election, um, and everyone is all caught up talking you know, about it. I got a chance to meet with three of the heads of three of the largest house church networks in China. It was a wonderful, beautiful time. I learned so much as people. I mean, each, you know, one of those guys, they had like a million people in their chain of house churches, and the others were not much smaller. And I asked them at the end, says, I, I want to have one thing I will pray for you for the rest of my life. And I will try to pray every single day for you for the rest of my life. What is that one thing? And they all looked, kind of looked at each other, and they kind of looked at the senior person. And, and he finally just uh, looked at me and said, pray that our government will not make Christianity legal because it would ruin the church and we would become like the West, lukewarm and divided. I literally was trembling <laughs> when he said it. 
is that, I mean, here's somebody, his life would be, I mean, he'd been in prison multiple times. He's, you know, living hand to mouth his entire life. But he knew when you've got this deception that the power of the world will help you make it for yourself, that you stop fully living out your Christian faith. Um, You stop counting the costs. So, you know, I don't know how we deliberately and intentionally do those things, but I think if we're not uh, making tough decisions, even political decisions that aren't always in our best interest, you know, the times my wife and I prayed, you know, where taxes are going up, we don't have any school-age kids anymore. It's in our best interest to vote against that tax increase. But wait a minute, it's not in the best interest of my neighbors who have kids I'm going to vote for that tax increase. I mean, if we're not occasionally spending the little bit of political power we have where our primary motive is somebody else other than our group and our tribe, then we're probably not voting Christianly. That would make a great (laughs) (laughs) T-shirt. A really long one. (laughs) It comes only an extra large. Perhaps we can shorten it and just say, think about somebody else. Yeah, there you go. That's, it's not about you. (laughs) Well, I have enjoyed our conversation. I'm going to have to have you to come back. I would love that. Dr. Stratton, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Hans. It's always an honor to be with you. Have a wonderful day. Shalom. Shalom. Gary Stratton, Dean and Professor of Spiritual Formation and Cultural Leadership at Johnson University. For more resource materials from Dr. Stratton, visit GaryDavidStratton.com. That's our podcast for today. I'm John C. Lemon. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening.